Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in your mercy, allow us to stand unflinching and humble before your word. Amen. Now, I didn't uh, ask to preach on the fifth chapter of Ezekiel. I want to point out it was assigned to me. But it does, as it turns out, speak to a way in which I have come more and more of late to view the Christian life. Uh, and in that sense, I'm not grinding an axe here. If there is an axe, it is God's, and he is grinding it. An immediate question that this chapter raises with force, you see, is this. Where do you and I stand before this word, which is God's word to us? It's a question that faces individuals, churches, and the church as a whole. That is, is it ever possible to listen in from the outside, as it were, to the roaring proclamation of God's judgment on sin? And this chapter in Ezekiel, at the least, seems to answer clearly, it is not possible. There is no ground upon which to stand apart from the sweeping force of God's word laid out by the prophet. What we hear instead today is the exhaustive and absolute character of God's destructive judgment upon Israel. And that judgment, if we enter into the people's life, as I believe it is our duty and even our identity to do, that judgment engulfs us as well. So let us listen to this carefully. Ezekiel is told by God to enact visibly the breadth of God's judgment on his people. With a sword, he is to cut off his hair and beard and divide it into three equal parts, reserving a bit to attach to the hem of his robe. Then, one by one, each pile of his hair is to be destroyed, burning it, chopping it up, and scattering it to the winds. And even those few remaining hairs he has bound to his robe are in the end to be thrown into the fire. It is a symbolic drama meant to demonstrate the sheer comprehensiveness of Israel's destruction at the hand of God. All of Israel, killed by the Babylonians, strained and struck down by disease as they are squeezed by siege and then destitution and famine, and then taken away captive and into exile to the ends of the earth. Second Kings, Jeremiah, or Lamentations all give us the gruesome details here. Even that little hair on the hem, those few who survived this holocaust, perhaps representing Gedaliah, left in the land, struggling, succumbing to assassinations, plottings, 
allying themselves with others in Egypt and the desert, stragglers, that is, to divine condemnation, thinking that they can escape the worst, even these two are thrown, as we know, into the furnace or are mowed down like dried rushes before the sickle. Strategies and tactics of every single kind are pulled apart and crushed. So this is a frightening, surely, and overwhelming chapter. And it is designed, just as Ezekiel's actions are ordered, or rather God's actions are pursued, it is designed to shock not just us, but the nations, the whole world itself. I am going to do something I have never done before, God says nor can it be conceived of again. God's judgment and its furiously exhaustive extent are almost annihilating, like a dammed up river swollen by torrential rains that finally bursts out and deluges the landscape and all living things in its path without pity, God says. Until finally, as Ezekiel puts it, God's anger is spent, finished, and like some madness, relieved. And left behind is a people, Israel, whose humiliation and perversion is complete, driven even to the horrific depths of cannibalism in the famine-struck city of Jerusalem, something Lamentations confirms in detail with mothers and fathers eating their dead children and children eating the flesh of their dead parents. Israel is debased beyond even the twisted imagination of her enemies. So in the face of this tempestuously inclusive divine judgment, where do you and I stand? You are at the least with me, the prophet Ezekiel seems to say, with me. For at the front end of the chapter is the figure of Ezekiel himself. It is he who sets up the embodied nature of this horrendous vista, shaving his head and beard, burning, cutting, scattering the piles of his hair, his own hair, that's the point. He stands for his own people in all of this. And in all of this, Ezekiel is himself drawn into the horror of the unfolding present and future, not only as a spectator, you see, but as a participant. What he is asked to do by God, understand, is itself a defilement, according to the law. As a priest, which he is, he is forbidden to shave his head, hair perhaps being a sign of divine life and creation, to be removed in any case only in mourning or in abject humiliation. And as in the previous chapter, Ezekiel is actually made by God to render himself impure, like his people on whom God's condemnation is hurtling. 
He is, after all, he and his family, remember, already a part of that scattered hair of his, thrown in the blistering winds of captivity in Babylon. He is speaking as an exiled prisoner like the rest of them. He already carries, that is, the burden of the judgment he announces. He carries it in his own body. If you recall our principal, Bishop Stephen, in discussing chapters 2 and 3 a few weeks ago, told us that part of Ezekiel's word is to teach us our own calling. So I ask you, is this our calling? That the servants of God should be consumed in their master's own fire? That the righteous should be expected to expire with the unrighteous? You can think about what this might mean and what context this could refer to even in our own time. But whatever the case, if you think this is a justice problem, you are surely right. But it is a justice problem with God from the start, not with Ezekiel, not with Scripture. After all, God's absolute and exhaustive, destructive judgment carries away with it, burns down with it, the good and the bad together. It always has. Pastors, servants, the generous and wicked, parents and children, all in a single flood. Ask the people of Cambodia, Rwanda, Aleppo, and over and over again. This is what God does if there is a God. And if this sounds shocking, it is because it is shocking. This is the very question that opens Origen's commentary on Ezekiel, which is the first Christian commentary on the book that we know of. Ezekiel, Origen says, presents us with a tremendous moral challenge. That is, this judgment, all these people judged, and the fact that the righteous, like Ezekiel himself, is swallowed up in this judgment along with everyone else. And Origen wonders how such a message of the righteous swept away with the wicked can be good news. And well, he might. He then answers at length by saying basically this. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't Ezekiel's fault that he was taken away captive. It was instead an act of divine mercy that the righteous should suffer with sinners. Mercy, Origen insists. For the righteous, he says, provide relief. That's his word. To the wicked. Simply by being there in the midst of the wicked's self-destruction and demise. They provide relief, and he goes on in detail, by warning, by correcting and reproving, but also by standing alongside, sharing, giving an example. It's true that Ezekiel doesn't ever speak in his whole book of divine love, except once, I think. But, in a sense, here it is, in a stark and costly form. 
the righteous mixed up with the unrighteous. Bad things happening to good people in the classic theodical quandary. All because it is an act of God's mercy that the righteous and the unrighteous be put together. And this then is a divine calling. Joining the righteous to the act of God's exhaustive judging and joining the righteous to those exhaustively judged. Friend of God the judge, like Abraham, and friend of the judged, friend of sinner also. A divine calling, of course, perfected only in one person who made his grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence and was without deceit, becoming sin who knew no sin. We know, you see, that in Christ somehow, this perfect joining of friend of the judge and friend of the judged ends up being mercy, love, redemption itself. Somehow, by some miraculous confection of divine ingredients, and I don't understand it, but I do know it's truthful. That is, that it takes account of all the facts, including hope itself. But to do that, the joining, you see, is absolutely critical in both directions. You can't have one without the other. If you want a cross without that, that is to say, if you want a cross that is a kind of interposition between judge and judged, and not a joining of the two, if you want a cross that is a kind of buffer between them, or an escape of one from the other, the righteous untouched by the wicked, the righteous silent in the face of wickedness, that is not what this is. And the people of Cambodia and Rwanda and Aleppo will say, as many of you might, who may have a schizophrenic parent, or broken siblings, or lost children, or rotten bodies. They and you will say in the face of such a cross that is not Ezekiel's cross, or Isaiah's cross, or Paul's, or Jesus's. They and you will say to the purveyors of this other and false cross, you have ignored the world as it really is. So if there is healing, and there is, it is where the righteous and the wicked are thrown together into God's hands and where God delivers himself into theirs. Where truth speaks openly to evil and yet where truth stands immovably alongside it. That is a perfect calling for Jesus Christ, but a calling nonetheless for us as well. He is friend of the judge and friend of sinner, and yet Jesus calls us his friends also. And I believe that for too long, for too many centuries, in too many dioceses, too many congregations, 
in too many ecclesial and cultural struggles, we have spurned a friendship such as this. Yet if we stand where Ezekiel stands, and there is no other place, you see, to stand for the righteous, we cannot run away from Israel, from Babylon, and from the long road between the two. From the words and reality of judgment, spoken truthfully, and from the hope given in standing beside the judged. Whatever our sense of purity and duty, prophecy and witness may be, there is only this one place in which any of this takes a living form. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.